Hello, welcome to GM Crypto with the Coin Fund team. We've spent years as a multi-strategy investment firm focused on blockchain. So join us to unpack complex ecosystem trends and hear from the founders shaping the future of Web3. Please subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter at CoinFund underscore IO. Please note that none of the following should be taken as investment advice. See coinfund.io slash disclaimers for more important information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to GM Crypto. I'm Kelsey, and today we have Seth, one of our managing partners here at CoinFund, and Billy, a investment and research principal. Thank you both for joining us. And I think Seth is going to kick it off with some of his views on this past week, which has certainly been a very, very exciting week. Thanks, Kelsey. Yeah, no, it's been quite a week. And I, I think a lot of people have kind of rehashed what happened with the USTD peg and Terra. So I think like I'll step back and give some broader comments, which I think there's some really interesting observations out of what happened there. One is there was very much a need for algorithmic stablecoins, and there, there still is. I think there's real product market fit. That's part of the reason why a broad set of market participants wanted to experiment here and believe that this was the iteration that could be successful. So I think if we kind of step back and say, well, what are the broader implications of what happened with Terra and UST last week? One, I, I think we're going to see kind of a sharpening of pencils on the algorithmic stablecoin design side. And you can kind of think broadly about stablecoins as falling within four buckets. So you have pure asset-backed one-for-one, that would be your USDC. You have asset-backed, but we don't really have the one-for-one visibility. That would be like Tether, USDT. Then you have partially algorithmic and fully algorithmic. And what's interesting is UST was actually migrating from the fully algorithmic to partially algorithmic with the purchases of Bitcoin that they were putting into the collateral stack. And I I think what, what we're likely to see is a more intense focus on the partially collateralized part of algorithmic, just with the recognition by the Terra team that there was a need for some degree of asset backing. I think you materially decrease the likelihood of the type of run dynamic that we saw last week when you have a decent collateral stack in there, either stable or low volatility assets. And then we'll see a consolidation around the asset backed as well. And my guess would be that we see a lot of growth in the collateralized asset-backed part of the realm. And then we see a lot of experimentation and probably a minority of the market that ends up with a algorithmic or uh, partially collateralized stablecoin. I think from a regulatory perspective, kind of the silver lining here, though, is that you end up with a very clear discussion around differences in stablecoin designs which maybe was lost in the discussion a few weeks ago before this happened. So I think now there can be a much clearer discussion around how asset-backed stablecoins are positive for the dollar. They're positive for demand for treasuries. They're positive for propagating the dollar or other currencies that are being used in the collateral stack more globally. So one of the silver linings will certainly be having a more nuanced regulatory discussion. And I think it's it's pretty clear to us, at least, that 
there's a wide range of stable coins. They all have advantages and disadvantages. And just from a purely self-interested government perspective, there's actually a lot of, there are a lot of benefits to having a dollar backed collateralized stable coin that, that has good reach. So that, that's kind of the few minutes on stable coins. If we think about the market, it's actually interesting. I mean, here we are sitting at 30,000 for Bitcoin, just using Bitcoin as a proxy for the overall market. We're still up versus where we started last year, where we started 21. And that's after 60, 70 billion of value evaporated very quickly just within UST and Luna. Not to mention the the broader dynamics that kind of became collateral damage to that falling apart. So I think that there's another really strong message, which is the space is actually quite anti-fragile and it can take big hits and leverage and interconnectedness and the pressures that that are put on different protocols with this type of volatility and, and with these big asset price changes actually netted out were absorbed relatively well. Obviously, we had a, a little bit of a flash crash overnight midweek last week. But beyond that, we recovered fairly quickly from that. And, and we're at a level that, again, is still up from where we were at any point in 2020, which is which is pretty remarkable considering what we're seeing broadly in assets from equities to credit. From here, where do we go? What we're seeing is, and and the framework that we've generally used is, you have a very positive crypto-specific backdrop right now. So, And we think the core tenant of that is the regulatory side, where over the last nine months, there's been a lot of positive regulatory movement, particularly out of Congress. We've talked about this on prior podcasts, and we think that's continuing. We think that the Obviously, there's going to be more discussion around stable coins, but but we think that that can be channeled in a, a very positive way. And then from a developer perspective, and I, I think there's some areas that Billy's going to touch on a little bit later in the, the podcast, but we're seeing a lot of innovation. We're seeing a lot of smart developers continue to come into the space. Obviously, a lot of capital come into the space to fund that innovation. And builders are kind of heads down, continuing to fill in a lot of the open parts of the design space in really creative ways that we think are going to see a lot of value creation and unlock a lot of user activity when we come out of the bear market. So very bullish on what we're seeing that's crypto specific, both on a builder and from a regulatory perspective. But then sitting on top of that, you have the macro environment still challenging as we wait for kind of max hawkishness from the Fed. And then geopolitical is still an overhang. So what we're watching is a little bit of a pivot from hawkish to neutral from the Fed. We're starting to get some data points around, you know, maybe after the next 250 basis point increases, we'll have a kind of a re-underwriting of the current policy and, and that could end up being more neutral. We're certainly seeing some data points, micro data points around inflation coming off, some data points around layoffs increasing. So the economy is starting to come off a little bit. We're seeing some data points around inventories increasing. So all of the things that you would expect to see from financial conditions tightening that will get us closer to the point where the Fed is able to to back off of their hawkish positioning. And I think that's where equity markets stabilize. And that's probably where crypto starts to decouple and take a move higher. 
The one thing that I'd say to watch closely on the positive and on the the negative side. So on the positive side, I would watch the 10-year yield. I think we could see crypto start to break out without the 10-year yield coming down. But I think if the 10-year yield comes down to sub 250 or so, 250 basis points, that's more of a signal that we're getting to that point where we're going to start to see some risk on enter into the riskier parts of the market. And we think crypto falls into that category. And one of the interesting things that I'd watch on the potential negative catalyst side is what's happening with the Hong Kong dollar. There's some ties into the crypto ecosystem that are a little unexpected. And I think if we see the Hong Kong dollar peg break, and there's been some pressure on it, you've seen some defense from the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. But if we see that break, we think there could be some knock-on effects within crypto. So we're watching that closely as well. So cautiously optimistic right now. Yeah, I think cautiously optimistic is the name of the game. Thanks for that, Seth. And you know, we've been around, or CoinFund's been around since 2015. So this isn't our first encounter with challenging market conditions. I'd love to hear a little more from Billy on this too. Does this do the current market conditions change how we look at founders, teams, what verticals we're interested in exploring and investing in? Yeah. And so I think during any kind of bear market period or kind of challenging market, what you really have to see is as a focus on what is the infrastructure that we need kind of in, in the go forward to be able to kind of bring us to that next level of growth. And so as we kind of like look out into the space, you start to think about like, all right, what are the things that, you know, under a lot of load kind of experience issues over the, over the last period. And so I think this is you know, some on the scalability side on smart contract ecosystems, making sure that they can handle the high amount of throughput from DeFi, NFTs, play to earn. And then you're also starting to say, what are the primitives that we could benefit from and then kind of unlocking that next use case? And so within like NFTs, this kind of NFT financialization and allowing your people to be able to get kind of borrow or kind of trading of, of NFTs more, more efficiently. And then I think for crypto really kind of realize their vision, the other kind of area that we're starting to focus on is you know, we really need to decentralize the entire like full Web3 stack. And so you're starting to see people come to market where you're able to decentralize either the front end of various steps or start to move into decentralizing node infrastructure or other kind of key and, and important areas. These are kind of the infrastructure layers that we think are most important to build during a kind of challenging market to be able to allow the you know, next set of users to come in and see crypto be more widely adopted. Yeah, I agree, Billy. And I'd also love to hear your thoughts a little bit on on cross chain. I know you've been diving into that recently as well. Yeah, we'd love to. Like, I think to be able to like get into cross chain, I think it's important to kind of do like a history lesson as to like where we've been and where we're going. So, okay, great. We're ready for the history lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you had Ethereum, which is kind of the first smart contract ecosystem, and it was kind of a, a walled garden in of itself. And then because of the challenges around you know scalability for Ethereum, the high fees, etc., you had a bunch of competitors. You know, pop up at the beginning of 2021 is when they started to gain wide market adoption. And they all made different trade-offs around you know, decentralization, scalability, fees, et cetera. But these were all in and of themselves, you know, fairly walled gardens, right? You had connections into them, you have via exchanges for some, and then others, there were some like more centralized bridges. So basically a way to bring assets from one ecosystem to another. And these are primarily done through a, what's called a proof of authority, meaning that there's like a multi-sig that people like need to sign to be able to like move assets. So what we're moving to is that we need to decentralize, like I said, the infrastructure of the smart contracting ecosystem. And you're trying to see a proliferation 
of base layers more broadly that you then need to connect. And so we're moving to a world where you're going to have smart contract bridges that kind of connect all these various base layers. And so you're going to be able to do this via moving of assets, which is the bridging side, and then also moving of messages. And so there are various constructions that are coming to market right now so that you can deploy an application kind of on a home base. You can deploy it on top of Ethereum and then be able to do a smart contract call to another ecosystem like Avalanche and be able to use kind of decentralized infrastructure to go and do this. And so we're starting to think this is going to be a place that's going to cause a condensing of the actual base layers that people deploy on, but there's going to be a proliferation of, of what are called app chains, which live on top of these base layers and allow you to have specific use cases for them. So the app chains that we've seen become very popular recently, what are called subnets on, on Avalanche. We actually had to have games spin up their own smart contract blockchain where they can actually then codify things in that allow them to specify certain parameters for their game and actually allow scalability. Because right now, all blockchains used to have all the transactions done on a monolithic layer. So basically all dApps compete for block space on Ethereum with every other dApp. That's why you see when there's a, you know, a, a board ape launch, you know, the, the, the gas prices spike, et cetera. And you're, so you're starting to see that people are realizing that this kind of monolithic construction is not the right one going forward. And so various smart contracting ecosystems are dealing with this in different ways. Ethereum is, you know, having layer, layer two ecosystems, Cosmos is having their own app chains, and Avalanche is attacking this, like I said, through kind of, as games start to do fair, fairly well, they spin up their own kind of subnet to offload capacity. And as you start to see a proliferation of these various kind of app chains, you need to be able to connect them. You need to be able to connect them into the actual ecosystem, which they sit on top of, which is, you know, for Ethereum, we'd be connecting the L2s to the Ethereum layer one. And then you also be able to need to be able to connect Ethereum to Cosmos or Ethereum to Avalanche. And this is kind of where these interoperability protocols, you know, come in. And so we're trying to see a rise in construction of these interoperability protocols where each kind of make different technical implementation trade-offs around security, throughput, fees, et cetera. Okay, Billy. Yeah. Is, is this a trend you think we'll continue to see? Yeah, I, th- I think similar to kind of the layer ones and smart contract ecosystem proliferation that we saw you know, in 2021, I think 2022 and 2023 are going to be the year of the proliferation of interoperability. And, and like, I think near term, I think people have an idea for how this can work around DeFi. Like the canonical example that, that people use is, right, right now you have yield aggregators, which are you know, kind of DeFi apps, that, which basically go and search and get you the best yield. And, and these have historically been confined to a specific smart contract ecosystem. So if I want to get, if I want to get the highest yield on my USDC, on top of Ethereum, I can go to Yearn. But if I want to get just the highest yield on USDC, any, in any smart contract ecosystem, there isn't an adapt that can do that right now. And so you can imagine that you, know, you could have a cross-chain yield aggregator that could deploy to one of these interoperability protocols. You can give it USDC. You can say, hey, here's my risk tolerance. Like I either want to you know, try and get the highest yield, take the most risk, or I want to do low risk. And then they can go programmatically find you that yield out in crypto. And so there are going to be some of these cross-chain DeFi applications that are going to be built. And then I think the surface area for experimentation is going to grow due to a result of this. And you can imagine a world that like, hey, like, you know, I live in Miami, I'm going to the FTX event. I want to buy an NFT using my USDC on Solana. The NFT lives on near and then you know, everything kind of in the back end via my cross-chain wallet is facilitated via these interoperability protocols is I take my USDC from Solana, I buy my tickets on, on near, send that back to my wallet. 
And then maybe there's like rewards, et cetera, and social tokens that I get that live on top of Ethereum. And so you can kind of start to see how everything's connected in these blockchains such that this is really going to allow a lot of the user experience to be kind of abstracted away and put more into the dApps rather than the user flow that we currently exist with. Absolutely. And it's a very compelling case for interoperability. And I think on the other side of things, what are some of the main challenges that are facing the teams that are focused on building and creating these different projects that are focused on interoperability? What kind of roadblocks have they encountered? What do you see them coming across, I guess, in the near to long term as well? Yeah. So I would say right now, just like smart contract ecosystems focus and try to achieve as much decentralization as possible. I think that's important as well for these interoperability protocols as well as security, right? Because there, I think crypto has been kind of rife with, with exploits and they're trying to kind of increase in value. And these cross-chain interoperability protocols as well as bridges often hold a lot of value depending on their construction. And so I think the teams there are focusing on security and decentralization first. And then the hardest part is going to be kind of the business development and go to market. Because previously, for a lot of DeFi protocols, you know, users would come directly to the protocol themselves, whereas on, on bridges and interoperability protocols, these are going to be built into the applications themselves. So you're really just making sure that you can have clear documentation, SDKs, et cetera, such that developers are able to kind of plug and play your interoperability protocol directly into the DAP. So, so it's really kind of on the tech side and then kind of the go-to-market side, which are kind of the two challenges that interoperability protocols are trying to tackle right now. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks so much, Billy. And kind of on the side, Seth, was there anything else you wanted to add before we run out of time for this week? We're obviously thinking about what this means for value capture in different parts of the tech stack. And that is non-obvious and it's an area that we could spend a lot of time on in a, a future podcast, but we're thinking about what this means for base layer value capture, what this means for application layer value capture. And I think this is going to be right now, it's single digit billions in value across both the private side and the, the liquid side. And we think this could be a meaningfully larger part of the value capture within the, the crypto technology stack. And again, the question is, is that zero sum? Is that positive sum? And those are the types of discussions that we're having internally right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and Seth, Billy, thank you so much for joining this week. We'll definitely have to come on for another interoperability focused conversation, I think, coming up. But really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Kelsey.